as I was studying this psalm this week, Psalm 86, it seems to me, although there are probably several different ways to outline this particular psalm, read any particular commentator and you're going to find about as many answers as the ones you read for how to outline this psalm. But I see, at least in my mind, three things that certainly stand out as you look at this psalm and as you break it up into parts so that you might see all of its treasure. The first of these three that I see is what I might call a plea for grace via answered prayer. A plea for grace via answered prayer. Now, the reason I say that it is a plea for grace is because that plea for grace is actually mentioned to us. Do you see it there in verse 6? Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. That's a, that's a title if there ever was one. My plea for grace. Anybody have enough grace? Anybody in need of more grace? Certainly I do. Certainly we all do. And if we plea for grace throughout this psalm, there are three clear ways in which that grace can be conferred to us or upon us. And the first one I see in the first seven verses is a plea for grace via answered prayer. It seems to me that the first seven verses of Psalm 86 all have to do in some way with answered prayer. In fact, while it's true that the entire psalm itself is one long prayer, certainly the first seven verses are especially about prayer. Look at verse 1, Psalm 86.1. Incline your ear, O Lord, O Yahweh, sovereign Lord, covenant Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. When David says that he's poor and needy, this is why we classify this particular psalm as a lament psalm. We don't know exactly what's going on here in David's life. We don't know the time that David is writing this psalm and wanting Israel to sing such a song. We don't know. We don't know at all. And I've said before, and it bears repeating, that it really shouldn't altogether matter to us because we're in a transcendent time. We're in a different place. We're in a different season, a different category, a different century. And because of that, the content of the psalm is the most important thing. Now, sometimes, of course, historically or the setting might very well give us great insight about the psalm. But here, all we're talking about, and we can relate to this psalm so wonderfully, and that is this. God confers His grace upon us when we pray, and He's, of course, inclined to answer. He's inclined to answer. That's why David says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For in some way in David's life, in David's experience, he's poor and needy. It's interesting that the second part of verse 1 is a sort of a play on words. It's, I, poor and needy, am, or am, 
poor and needy I. He's making an emphasis out of it. He's saying, I am so poor. I am so needy. I need you to incline your ear. And did we not see that in the previous psalm, the one we just studied, Psalm 85? We are asking the Lord to incline, to bend his ear toward us. We saw that in Psalm 84 as well. We want the ear of God. Psalm 84, 8, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. This is, this is a ringing theme, isn't it? Verse 8 of Psalm 85, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So God speaks to us by his oracle, by his teaching, by the Holy Scripture, and we ask God to hear our prayers. These psalms are really one long, continuous prayer request, aren't they? Now, not everything about every psalm is a prayer request. Sometimes there are directions and declarations and injunctions and warnings. But somewhere and somehow, in almost all of these psalms, we have this sense of prayer. And of course, David is saying, I certainly want answered prayer in my life. I'm poor. I'm needy. I need you to come alongside me. I need need you to bend down and incline your ear to my supplication, to my prayer, to my need, to my poor condition. Now we learn a little bit more in verse 2 when he says, preserve my life. Perhaps David is under attack. Perhaps the enemy is nipping at his heels. Perhaps David is saying, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Preserve my life. And then he appeals to his own godliness. He's not saying he's perfect. He's only saying, I'm one of yours. I'm one of your children. I need you. Preserve my life. Save your servant who trusts in you. Do you see the parallelism there? Preserve my life corresponds to save your servant. For I am godly corresponds to who trusts in you person who's godly trusts in Yahweh. The person who trusts in Yahweh is godly. And then notice, you are my God at the end of verse 2. You are my God. That's his declaration. That's his exclamation. You're, you're my God. David's crying out for grace. Anybody here tonight who often or should cry out for grace? You know, when you're down and discouraged, you certainly are more inclined to incline God's ear. But not just when you're down, not just when you're discouraged, not when you have a need or poor like David. We need grace every day. We need grace in the great times. We need grace in the blessed times. We need grace all the time. And he's not finished. Look at verse 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Be gracious to me. I need grace, and I need God to be gracious to me because I'm crying. Look at the end of verse 3. For to you do I cry all the day. 
Now, of course, we know that, hyperbolically speaking, that David is not crying, literally, all day, every day, every moment. But what he's certainly referring to, I assume, is that he's in a season of crying. He's crying. Obviously, something's going on. He's poor, he's needy, he's crying. And when you're crying, you want to be glad instead. Verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant. Make me happy, make me blessed, Um, make me enjoy my relationship with you and peace and safety. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. I want to be that way. I want to have my soul lifted up. I don't want to continue to be in darkness and despondency. I don't want to be forever gloom and doom in life. You know, that's one of the things that I think the Lord has really worked on with me and in me, and that is I refuse to live a life that speaks of something like I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I'm down. I'm discouraged. I'm disconsolate. Every day, every season of my life, there's something that I could point out that I could say, woe is me. Woe is the world. For me, it's completely the opposite. It's an opportunity to say, yes, the world is wicked Yes, there's trouble all around. Yes, there is difficulty and trials and tests in this life. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. But what is good about life? What is desirable about life? Psalm 75, I desire you and there is nothing on earth earth besides you that I desire. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Don't always try to find the manure pile in every luscious meadow. Think of the meadow. Think of the pretty flowers. Think of the bright sunshine. Think of the horizon with its beauty. Don't always be thinking about the worst. Don't always be concentrating on the bad things that are happening in my life or in the life of our world or in the people that we love and all of the things that could go wrong. Think about the things that are right, the things that God is doing to uphold the world by the word of his power. Think about the breath that you have in your souls your bodies. Think about the idea of how blessed you are. Think about all of the things for which you could continually give thanks to God. I think that's what David is saying here in verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. Be glad. That doesn't mean uh, be deliriously giddy for no reason at all. There's content here. You are my God, verse 2. What's what's more grand than that? You're my God. 
You love me. You care for me. You protect me. You're my God. Gladden the soul of your servant. I'm going to lift up my soul because you are my God. And then he gives more content. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. You remember we said this morning, Psalm 119, 68a, you are good, speaking of God, and you do good. Here it is again. For you, O Lord, are good. I don't know how many times in the Bible someone probably has done a numerical comparison, numerical list of all the times the Bible says God is good. It's probably in the thousands. God is good. He's inherently good, and he does good. And he's forgiving. Now that, my friends, is a way for you to avoid the manure piles and to see only luscious meadows. To know how many times a day it is expressed in the heart of God toward the people who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, how forgiving God is. Think about how many times we sin in word or deed, thought or action. Think of it. And yet God is continually expressing himself as a forgiving God. And not only that, the latter part of verse 5, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. He's abounding in steadfast love, his covenant love, his faithful love. Notice the attributes here. God is good. God is forgiving. God is abounding in steadfast love. That's part of the reason I love these psalms. It's part of the reason I decided in my heart I want to preach through every one of them because I continually, psalm after psalm after psalm, see all of these great divine attributes of our Savior. And when we focus our minds and our attention and our eyes and our ears on all the things that God is, it makes me lose myself in Him and not think about myself. I think that's part of the reason that David is saying all of these things. One of the ways to lift up your soul is to get your eyes off yourself. It's to concentrate on Him. It's to take all of these things, like these attributes of God's goodness and God's forgiving nature and God's abounding steadfast love, and especially, it says, to all who call upon you. You have to call upon this God. See how all of these verses in the first seven have to do somehow and in some way with prayer? You're calling on God. Prayer, incline your ear, verse 1. Save your servant. You're praying. You're asking God to do something for you. You're asking him to be gracious to you, verse 3. You're asking him to create a glad soul within you, his servant. And you're also calling upon him. No wonder verse 6 says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. When you plea for grace, do you do so via your prayer life. Pleading for grace is the essence, I think, of prayer. Constantly asking for grace. Constantly thanking God for His grace. 
And you do that through prayer. And when he answers in the sweetness of his character, it's a plea for grace answered. Verse 7, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you for you answer me. What a statement, not just of expectation, but declaration. You answer me. That's God doing what David's asking for. You, you're answering my prayer, which is in and of itself a way to say he ends this first section by thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving, the word is not listed there, but that's surely the truth behind it, right? I'm so thankful as I'm crying out to you, as I'm seeking you to answer my prayers, you answer me. How many times do we pray for things? And myself included at the top of this list, an answer comes and I forget to thank him. I'm so concerned and I'm so so overwhelmed by the answer to my prayer, I go on my merry way and I don't stop to say thank you. Thank you. No wonder in our study of 1 Thessalonians, we're told by Paul, give thanks in all things, all circumstances. Give thanks and praise to God continually. This is a great psalm that encourages us to have a plea for grace and particularly a plea for grace via answered prayer. Here's number two. Number two in our outline list. A plea for grace via wholehearted worship. Wholehearted worship. I see that in verses 8 to 13. When you and I have a plea for grace, and I'm taking that as I said right out of verse 6, listen to my plea for grace. Well, one of the ways in which I assume God will pour out His grace for my plea is if I'm involved in what we might call wholehearted worship. In other words, my whole heart is involved in this. Look at verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord. Now, you and I know that there aren't really any gods except the Lord, except Yahweh. We know that. But of course, there are people who believe that there are other gods, and they worship them. Some they even create out of their own hands. But some think that maybe these gods are also those that are the stars of the sky, the planets of the cosmos. Angels, phantoms, apparitions, visions. But they aren't gods. In fact, you know one of the most succinct statements about this idea that there aren't really other gods is contained for us in 1 Corinthians 8. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 
8, and I'll show you. This is a very succinct statement from David, uh, excuse me, from Paul, who makes it very, very clear, even in a context where there are people who are involved in demon worship, demon worship. And he makes a declaration. He's talking about food that's offered to idols here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you start in verse 4, it says this, Therefore, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no what? Real existence. All the idols that people serve, that they've crafted or constructed themselves, aren't really gods at all because human beings have created them. If the human being created the idol, then don't worship the idol. Worship yourself because you are the one that created it. He says, really, idols are nothing. There's no real existence to them. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, notice it is in quotes, and many lords, again in quotes, yet for us, for Christians, for Trinitarian believers, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are all things and through whom we exist. Now, of course, there are other places where the Holy Spirit is mentioned too, so it's a Trinitarian statement. But here, it's talking about the fact that there aren't really other gods. There is one God, the Father, for whom we exist, and the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Do you see the parallel there? God the Father, through whom we exist, from whom we exist, and Jesus Christ, through whom we exist. Putting them on a same par, a same plane. And it's making the point there aren't really other gods. There just aren't. Or, like David says here, there's none like you, even among the other so called gods. You are unique. And then he says at the end of verse 8, nor are there any works like yours. So it's the person of God, the character of God, the attributes of God, and then the works of God, how he displays the fact that he is God. And how many times do you see in the Old Testament that idea of the release of those Jews, those Israelites in Egypt where they were delivered from Egypt, delivered from Pharaoh. And time and time and time again, the Old Testament gives us the sense that this great God brought that about. He brought, after over 400 years of Egyptian bondage, a kind of deliverance that has no parallel except in the New Testament when such an Egyptian deliverance is only seen as lesser than the greater, and that is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That kind of deliverance. 
So you have in the Old Testament this great and famous and fantastic and superlative deliverance of people from Egyptian bondage. I did this for you. I created this for you. I created miracles so that you could be delivered. And all of these miracles are on abundant display. And I've created also a miracle, and that is the very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so that you and I would see very, very clearly that I am God. God, there is no other, and my works are the display of such a character and such a God. And if you don't have that kind of God, the only God there is, you don't have wholehearted worship. There is no wholehearted worship apart from worshiping the one and the only true God. That's what David's saying here. And it's so interesting. Look at verse 9. All the nations you have made. Now, God made all of these nations, all the nations of the world. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Now, that is most interesting because, of course, all of those pagan nations, all of those non-Israelite nations were serving and creating and bowing down to all kinds of gods except Yahweh God. But this says that it's going to happen one day that all the nations that God himself has created, sort of like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 about the fact that God has created all the people groups of the world, and one day... All of these nations that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. And I suspect what he means by that is not just those who want to do it willingly, but even those who will have to do it begrudgingly. They'll have to admit. They'll have to say, we bow before the true God of the universe, even though we don't want to, but we must because it's true and he forces us to do it even at the point of our acknowledgement that it has to be true, though we are bare-knuckled saying, I don't like the fact, but it is a fact. You know, this is so true. Turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. This verse says the exact thing that Psalm 86 verse 9 says, Revelation chapter 15. This is such a declarative verse. Revelation chapter 15, look at verse 4. Revelation 15, 4. Don't let this escape your notice. Of course, it's in the middle of a context. And that context in verse 3 says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, and here's this song, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Notice these attributes. O King of the nations. Notice that, the King of all the nations. He's the sovereign Lord, even of all the nations of the world, even of all the nations that don't actually bow down before him, but one day will. And then verse 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The answer is no one. Everyone will fear. They'll have to. They'll be made to submit to this God because it is true, and they will glorify his name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
You see that? Begrudging or not, everyone will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone. That reminds me also of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. You want to talk about Jesus Christ's lordship? Do you remember in Philippians chapter 2? This is something that you and I ought to use as a prayer prompt day after day after day. Philippians chapter 2. This is, this is such a marvelous paean of praise. Verse 9, Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, highly exalted Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what is that name? It's the name Lord. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Notice that every knee should bow. Even not just those who willingly do it, but also those who will knuckle under and will affirm because they are forced to do it in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. That's the name. At the name of the Lord Jesus, every knee will bow. Not might bow. Not we assume or hope that a few or a mighty multitude, every knee. Every knee will bow. Why? Psalm 86.10. I tell you, why? They shall glorify your name for... This is an explanatory phrase, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. You alone are God. Oh, my friends, this kind of God, he demands such worship. Do you give him that worship? You say yes. How much? How often? How consistently? How do you give God the glory? And then David says in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. This is the practical application of it. This is the practical application of what God wants from us when we are seeing or being told about the extolling of all of his great attributes, all of his great character. Well, then teach me your way, O Yahweh, that I may walk in it. You see, this is not just a theology class. This is not just a, a, a lesson in uh, theology and teaching. This has legs on it. Truth has legs on it, I tell you. And when we see it, we see it this way, that I may walk in your truth. The practical application of God's attributes are to be lived out and not just understood. And I suspect if you say, I understand it, the Hebrew way of thinking was something like this. You don't understand something unless you're actually doing it. It's not just something that fills up your mind. It's not something that just gives you a head knowledge, as people say. There is no head knowledge unless it's applied knowledge. 
because the heart and the mind are the same thing. This is, this is a way. This is, a, this is an application that I may walk in your truth. And then notice at the end of verse 11, unite my heart to fear your name. My friends, that is a memory verse right there. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. What do you think David might be referring to when he says that? Well, think of its opposite. I need to have my heart united because at times as a pilgrim, as a believer, as a Christian, my heart is what? Divided. A divided heart. We might even say it this way. I've got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. I've got one eye on the things of God and I have the other eye on the things of the world. I take three steps forward, two steps back. I've got a divided heart. Don't want to be a double-minded man. I want my heart to be unified. I don't want my heart to be divided. Unite my heart to fear your name. I can't wait one day to meet King David. I can't wait to meet him, to understand how this man was so great in a thousand ways and so honest about his failures in a thousand ways. I love the fact that he says, unite my heart to fear your name. And then he goes on, look at verse 12. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my what? Whole heart. I mean, in one place, David is acknowledging a divided heart, and he's asking for his heart to be united. And then in another, he says, I want to give thanks to you. I do give thanks to you with my whole heart. I know that at times my heart is completely divided. It's split in a hundred ways. And now I'm asking that that divided heart be so united that it is a wholehearted giving of thanks to you, O Lord my God, and I will glorify your name forever. I tell you what, one day, one night, one hour meditating on a psalm like Psalm 86 can help unite your heart. It can bring you into a wholehearted worship of God in your plea for grace. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. He's already mentioned steadfast love, hasn't he? This covenant love of God, this this unending, this beautiful, committed love of our Savior, for great is that love. And notice he says, it's toward me. Can you think of that? The God who created the universe, the God who created all of these mountains and valleys and seas and all of the forests of the world, all of those things and a hundred things more, the plant kingdom, all of this intricate design, all of this that shows this, this creator God and all of his explicit abundance and all of his creative power, and yet he 
extends his steadfast love toward little old me. Toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Now, Sheol is varied in its meaning in the Old Testament. could mean the grave. could mean, in various contexts, the idea of judgment, punishment. Beyond the death of the grave, hell. We don't know what it is here, but we know this. David says, you've delivered my soul from it. You've delivered my soul from it. And notice he says, you have delivered my soul from it. You've got to have a plea for grace via answered prayer. And you've also got to have a plea of grace via wholehearted worship. Thirdly and lastly, verses 14 to 17, what I call a plea for grace via rescue and protection. Via through the avenue of rescue and protection. You see, when you break up a psalm like this, Psalm 86, you're seeing things like answered prayer, verses 1 to 7. You're seeing wholehearted worship that the worshiper is to bring to God, verses 8 to 13. And in verses 14 to 17, you see a plea for grace via rescue and protection. Remember, this is a lament psalm. And so he says, verse 14, O God, Insolent men, that's prideful men, they've risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. Again, we don't know the details. We also know David was a mighty man, a man of valor, a man of blood, a warrior. No wonder there's so many psalms and so many places where David's either running into or away from Those who want to take his life, insolent men rising up against him, ruthless men seeking his life. And notice how he characterizes them in verse 14. And they do not set you before them. You know, if we took that little phrase just by itself and turn it around in a completely different way, we might say this. The difference between believers and unbelievers is that believers set God before them and unbelievers don't. Think about it for your own spiritual life. What kind of practices do you involve yourself in when you are trying to tangibly set God before you? It's not like an icon. You're not setting the Bible on the... the, uh, coffee table and looking at it as though I'm setting God before me. It's not the Bible itself. It's what's in the Bible. It's the truth contained in the Scripture. And so if you were wanting to set God before you, perhaps you would set Psalm 86 before you. What does Psalm 86 say? How am I setting God before my eyes? Well, I'm learning its truths. I'm looking at Psalm 86 and I'm seeing who God is and all of his divine character and attributes that are listed here. I'm, I'm setting him before my eyes. And that's precisely what unbelievers don't do. Insolent men, ruthless men, they don't set God before them. They don't serve him. He's not Lord of their lives. And the difference between they and us is that we do. We do. That's 
That's the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian is setting God before your eyes. You say, well, what does that look like practically? You talk to him. You talk to him by prayer. You seek answered prayer. You talk to him and you commune with him him by way of wholehearted worship. That's what David's saying in the first two outline points here. He's saying, I I want to set you before me because I want answered prayer from you. I believe that's who you are. It's a God who answers prayer. He's a prayer answering God. And I also want to set you before me in such a way that I'm involved in wholehearted worship. Not half worship, not stunted worship, not disbelieving worship, but wholehearted worship because I don't want a divided heart. I want a united heart. And I also want to be rescued. I want to be protected. Who doesn't want to be protected? Do you see those ghastly scenes of those Afghans who were trying to get on those rescue vehicles, the rescue planes? The... Now the, our government is asking for commercial airlines to jump in and to have more extraction procedures so that more people can be rescued. Do you see the, the picture of the little baby that was, that was being handed to the Americans who are trying to salvage, save, rescue, protect all of those who are crying out, the people who are on those planes who are falling off to their death? And while that's, of course, talking about the physical kind of rescue, the physical kind of protection, we need that so far more spiritually, don't we? Now, David's talking about some kind of physical uprising, insolent men, ruthless men who are seeking his life. But he knows it's even far more important for that to be in the spiritual dimension. He's asking for a plea for grace. He's pleading for God's grace by way of rescue and protection. And he says in verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's yet another mention of his covenant love and faithfulness. That's the word emet. That's the word for truth. So notice the attributes. God is merciful. He's gracious, secondly. Thirdly, he's slow to anger. Fourthly, he's abounding in steadfast love, and he's abounding in truth, faithfulness, faithful to himself. He's a faithful, covenant-keeping God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He's a God who's slow to anger. And then verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. I think what David is saying is you are in and of yourself characterized by graciousness. Now turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength, give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Save me as one of your sons. Save me. Deliver me. Deliver me from those insolent men and those ruthless men who want to take my life, who want to see my life end. Rescue me. Protect me. Verse 17, show me a sign of your favor. Show me a sign of your grace. If you're a gracious God, show me grace. I need it. You know, maybe one of the 
best prayers a Christian could ever pray is something like this. Oh, gracious God, be gracious to me. Succinct, to the point, it's one of those arrow prayers. You just shoot it up and say, Lord, I need your grace right now. Please give me grace. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me, this is in that context now of needing to be rescued, protected. This is is the sense of this portion of Psalm 86, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, embarrassed. This was a shame-based culture. And that was like the worst thing that could happen to someone that they would have to be acknowledged as being shameful, ashamed, embarrassed in the public eye. Why? Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. You have helped and comforted one of your people, namely David, namely myself, and because you helped me and comforted me, that means these insolent, ruthless men are going to be put to shame because they're not going to be able to do what they want to do to me and my life. Take my life. They're not going to be able to do it because you protected me, you rescued me, and because of that, they will be put to shame. They will have to begrudgingly acknowledge that you, are the only true and living God. And that all the gods they serve, and that's the very reason they want to snuff out my life, is because they hate Yahweh God, and they're serving their would-be gods, the gods with a little g, and they hate the God with the capital G, and they want, if they can, to snuff me out, because then they can show the world that they got one of God's own. And he says, help me. Comfort me, save me, rescue me, protect me. And when you do, it's to be shown as a sign of your grace, your favor. I'll tell you, you want a psalm to pray through, to read, to contemplate, to meditate upon? This this is one of those. Now, of course, you're going to hear me say, Just about every one of these psalms are one of those. But since we're studying this one tonight, it's one of those. A plea for grace via answered prayer. A plea for grace that is granted because you and I have wholehearted worship toward the one and only true God of the universe. And a plea for grace for rescue and protection. What a God we serve. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this this God, you, you are our light and our salvation. You are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and you are faithful, you are true true to yourself, true to your character, true to your promises, true to your covenant love. And you come to us in our time of need time and time and time again. And we're so thankful. Father, why do we doubt you? Why do we question your goodness? Why do I 
kick against you when I don't see you immediately getting me out of the jam? Well, it's certainly a lack of faith on my part. And sometimes you don't readily come because you're teaching us a hundred lessons. So teach me your truth. Let me walk in your way, the way of truth. Let me not presume that you should come to me and get me out of my jam at every whim of my own making. I ask you, let me focus the attention of my life more upon your pristine, stellar, perfect character. And when I do, you'll come alongside me. You know what I need. You will answer my prayers. They may not always be in the way that I assume, but you'll answer my prayers. And if I have a wholehearted commitment to knowing you, this God of grace and favor, I will extol you and you will unite my heart to have a whole heart of praise and worship. And you will also Give me rescue and protection when I most need it. And when you're most inclined to see that there is no way out and I have no resources but you and you answer my prayers. Father, we all need you. And thank you that you come to our aid. May we marinate our souls in these psalms like Psalm 86 and we'll thank you and praise you forever and ever and we'll be spending those of us who love you and are called by your name will do so throughout all eternity extolling your character, these attributes and so many more because you are worthy of our praise. We ask that you would continue to grant us such favor, such grace, because we're in such need of it. We plea for your grace. And as we do, you say to us, pray to me, communicate with me, ask for grace through your prayers, and I will answer. If you would but humble yourself before me, and unite your wholehearted action toward me, I will come to you. And when you are in need and have no rescue or protection besides your good hand, Lord, you'll rush in and you'll rescue and protect us, sometimes even from ourselves. Lord, thank you for granting us just a season, just an hour or so tonight to be able to think and to set you before our eyes. Not like the world, not like the unbelievers who don't set you before them. But we as your people, we want to set you before us. And we do, not just tonight, 
but ever and always. And you will be shown as majestic and glorious. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.